Luke 23, 34, says, this is tiny print, I'm just going to read mine. <laughs> Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. The first words of Christ when he was on the cross. So I have taught many school, Sunday school classes over the years, and my usual pattern is to read the Bible passage, talk about it a little bit, and then end the class by saying, how are you going to apply this lesson to your life? And most of the time I get things like this. Be kind to people. You know, I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to treat other people the way I want to be treated. I'm going to help people in need. You know, so I get, I get a lot of the, those kind of things. So once in a while I throw out this question. I say, are Christians any different from the Boy Scouts? Because Scouts are kind, and Scouts help people in need, and Scouts are courageous. So are we any different? And then after some discussion, I'll ask, well, are there things that Christians do that scouts don't do, right? And then I'll say, how about loving your enemies? And that usually sparks some kind of discussion because that seems to trigger memories of people who are enemies. And so, you know, I'll get very animated and they'll talk about how these people don't deserve any love and, you know, <laughs> we get kind of heated. So then I will always answer back with this verse, I'll say, well, what did Jesus do? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. You know, after he was falsely accused, he was flogged, mocked, spit on, and then actually nailed to the cross. He prayed for his, his um, persecutors and forgave them. So that's, that's incredible, because no Boy Scout is expected to do that. Um, so, but the only difference, the big difference, is that only a person who's been born again would ever do that. If a person does not have a heart transformed by God, it would be impossible to love those who have persecuted you. But Jesus does change our hearts, so we can respond in the same way that Jesus did. Now, I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus said, they don't know what they're doing. You know, he forgave them and said, well, they don't know what they're doing. And I thought, didn't they know what they were doing? That looked pretty deliberate to me. You know, they were, you know, marched him down with the cross and, you know, did all those things. And, you know, maybe Jesus meant something deep about that when he, he said that. But I do know <clears throat> that God is the only one that can bring spiritual understanding. You know, God is the one that can take a person out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's the only one that can do that. We were in darkness too, you know, but God gave us the faith to believe. And I, you know, I've been learning lately that, you know, unbelievers, they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy, and Satan has kept people in darkness. And so we want to bring those people and tell them about Christ and bring them into help, you know, facilitate that process of God bringing them into his marvelous light. So when people I know that know I'm a believer, I pray, you know, if I'm called a hater or if I'm called a hypocrite or if I'm called a homophobe or any of those kind of things, I really pray that I can respond like Jesus did with compassion, and say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. One of the versions that I read said, kept hurling insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds Deserved, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, 
truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I thought about what does it take to be saved. And usually I, I, in my Christian upbringing, we've had the four spiritual laws. We've had uh, evangelism explosion some years ago. We've had all of these rules that we do. But what it comes down to is that Jesus loved him. Did the man deserve it? Do I deserve it? What does it take to know God? And the hope for me is that it really is what Grace said. It's God and the Holy Spirit who works within them so that God becomes real. He becomes a part of their life. And what's my job? To love them. Not to argue them into heaven. Not to chastise them into heaven. But to love them. To pray for them. The criminal, there were three criminals on a tree. One didn't deserve it. And the other was so brought up with his own anger, all he could do was think, huh, if you're, the, if you're the king of Jews, if you're really God, save us and me. And the other one, in his own agony, because they're dying on this tree, said, don't you know this, is a, this man is different? And I don't even know if he said, he didn't even say, this is God. He said, this man is different. Savior, Lord, remember me. That's all he said. Remember me. And what was Jesus' response? Yes, I will remember you. So when you pray for the loved ones in your family who don't know the Lord, when you pray for the friends that you have that you love so dearly and you think, if they only knew Jesus, their life would be whole. Not, not apart from troubles or misery, but there's hope. I left uh, Israel from the Middle East and recognized that, and I've said this before, the problems in the Middle East, the problems with the problems in my life and in your life, if, if you rely on my power, on man's power, it leads you to despair. You can't fight it. You can't find the, the devil. But if you do it in the light of Jesus Christ and his word, and we pray, and we know and recognize him working in my life, there's hope. Don't know how, but there's hope. We all know it. We've all been there. Jesus is the difference. And to this thief, or this criminal, we don't even know a thief, but this criminal on the cross, he knew in his own agony, and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, was, Jesus was in agony too. And he had love and compassion and reached over to that man and said, today you will be with me in paradise. What a love. What love. What love is this? I'll be reading from John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing thereby, he said to her, Woman, here's your son, and to the disciple, here's your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Um, during this time, the crucifixion, Jesus' mother and his, his, her sister, Mary's wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene were there, and the only disciple to come was John. It must have taken them a lot of courage to come because nobody else really cared to be there, but they were there. Mary cared very much about her son, Jesus. Mary felt the pain of Jesus just like the others. That was her only son. 
Mary knew that Jesus had a purpose which was now done here on earth. He died for all our sins. He gave the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. Jesus did care for his mother when he was on earth, and he provided her needs physically and spiritually. Jesus knew that his mom was really grieving at this time. Normally, when we are in pain, we tend to look only at ourselves. But Jesus was unselfish. He always looked at others' needs, not on his own. He knew that someone needed to take care of his mother, that he would be dying soon. God shows us how important it is to care for our families as we care for family when he was dying. So Jesus spoke the words again. Woman, to his mom, here's your son, and to the disciple, here's your mother. He had a relationship with his mom and now wanted John to have the same relationship, to take care of his mother as his own mother. He was providing Mary with a relationship that would comfort her in her loss. Now he's asking her to take care of each other like a mother and son, even though they weren't physically mother and son. He wanted them to form a new bond, a new relationship. So we learn that God removes, sometimes when God removes some things from us, he provides us with something better. He wants to always provide for our spiritual well-being. Good evening. I'll be reading from Matthew 27, uh, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's actually a verse that's often kind of confused me or perplexed me. Because um, when I think about Jesus, I think, this is Jesus. Why, he knew what was going to happen to him. He, he, he's fully God. He, why, was he, uh, why was he feeling like God had forsaken him? Um, God had placed all the sins of the world on Jesus. And Jesus felt the weight of that burden. God cannot be in the presence of sin, so he turned away from Jesus. God is with us all. He's our creator. And even for non-believers, if he was totally gone out of their lives, I think they would feel despair and emptiness. Um, And when God turned away from Jesus, that's uh, the despair that Jesus felt probably many times over. Um, I think we have to remember that even though he was fully God, he was also fully human when he was here on earth. And being human, he could feel the pain, both spiritual and, and physical, of, of God not being there for that moment uh, during the crucifixion. Um, this verse was also uh, fulfilling a prophecy uh, from Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, it also starts off the same. I believe it's David who's who's, uh, saying this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And you find a lot, in Psalms 22, you find a lot of the verses are also uh, can be found in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Another one is, all who see me mock me. 
They make my mouth at me. They wag their heads. And from verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. And then verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Um, Pastor Chris was kind enough to forward me this uh, Bible commentary, also on Psalms 22, I'll read it. Um, kind of explains maybe um, why Jesus was saying, uh, saying this. Why hast thou forsaken me is the language of a heart binding up its happiness in God's favor. This must be applied to Christ. In the first words of this complaint, he poured out his soul before God when he was upon the cross. Being truly man, Christ felt a natural unwillingness to pass through such great sorrows, yet his zeal and love prevailed. Christ declared the holiness of God, his heavenly Father, in his sharpest sufferings. Here is a complaint of the contempt and reproach of men. The Savior here spoke of the abject state to which he was reduced. The history of Christ's suffering and of his birth explains this prophecy. So, even though the crucifixion, it was a dark day for those who are following Christ. Um, we have the luxury of knowing what goes on, what happened three days later on the third day. And the story continues. And um, I'd just like to read a verse from 2 Corinthians 5.21 to end it all. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you thirsty? Have you ever thought about it and realized that this is simply a yes or no question? You never say, I'm three quarters thirsty. But in the hustle and bustle of struggling through our daily lives, we don't realize our tank is empty until the answer is a very big yes. If you're like me, you don't stop during the middle of the day and ask yourself, am I thirsty? The only time you think about it is usually when someone asks you. So if no one asks you, then you, yourself, finally realize that you are thirsty when you're probably then at a point of dehydration. So let's look at God's holy word. Uh, John 19, verses 28 to 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. This is the fifth statement from the cross. It had been a long day for Jesus. He had been arrested in the middle of the night. He had been bounced around from court to court. He had been slapped around, pushed around, and mocked. A crown of thorns had been placed on his head. He had been beaten. They made him carry his own cross. They nailed the nails into his hands and into his feet. Not for one second did he have a moment's rest. Not for one moment had anybody offered him anything to drink. And now he says, I am thirsty. No wonder he was thirsty. He had lost a lot of blood. He was exposed to the elements the wind, the heat, the sun. He had been on the cross now for six hours. It's hot and it's dry and he is thirsty. There are many other earlier passages in the Bible where Jesus talked and taught about thirst. 
As Jesus ministers to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4 asking for a drink, he contrasts the temporary relief of drinking water and the eternity of living water. Verse 7, um, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He goes on to explain in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will, be, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Another example can be found in John 7 on the last day of the festival of the tabernacles. Jesus proclaimed in verse 37, Jesus, he stood up and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. These passages emphasize God's boundless love for humanity in the gift of eternal life through the sacrifice of his blameless son for the blemishes of sinful man. But this could only be accomplished by the heavenly son becoming an earthly human. And it was in this human body that Christ slept and he wept. He ate and he drank. He toiled and he labored and he thirsted. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. He lived on earth in a body of flesh and blood, just like you and me. He knew what it was like to experience pain. He knew what it was like to experience loneliness, sadness, joy, and anger. Jesus felt the same emotions and experienced the same feelings that we all do. The book of Philippians teaches us, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He was made into the likeness of men. He made you and me, um, and he took on flesh and bone. And because he is fully human, we have this promise in the book of Hebrews, for we do not have a high priest who, not, who cannot sympathize with us or with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So once again, I will ask, are you thirsty? But this time, don't only consider whether your body is thirsty, but also reflect on your thirst for Christ. Isn't it rather ironic that we so often wait to get a drink of water when we are dying of thirst? And similarly, so many people wait until their deathbed when they finally realize their need for living water. Just like the woman at the well learned, a single drink will not satisfy long when the soul is dying of thirst. John uh, 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. <clears throat> A man's final words are often viewed as perhaps the most important. Before giving up his spirit, Jesus uttered his final words, it is finished. So I looked up synonyms to the word finished and came up with these. 
closed, settled, resolved, finalized, fulfilled, perfected. So what did he mean? It means mission accomplished. Scripture is fulfilled. Jesus lived the original purpose-driven life. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was that purpose? He was here to fix what was broken. In Romans 5, 19, for as, as though one man's disobedience, that many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. His death on the cross was a fulfillment of God's plan and demonstration of God's grace towards all of mankind. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about it. He could have easily said, you are finished. So what does it mean for us today? First, Jesus walked it back for us. The original intimacy God had with man in the garden was shattered when Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus walked it back so we can have a relationship with him once again. Second, we were in uber amounts of trouble, and God gave us a lift. Christ's death on the cross resolved the broken relationship and transported us back into fellowship with him. Third, there was no self-checkout when it came to salvation. Jesus did on the cross something that we could not do for ourselves. Being a good person in and of itself does not get us in relationship with God. There's no admission scandal. There's, no, there's only one way to the Father, and it's through him. Fourth, his death on the cross changes our narrative. For all who believe in him, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of eternal life is Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to close with a story. On eight, at 8.37 a.m. on March 10th, Captain Yared and First Officer Mohammed were accelerating an Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX along runway 07R. At 8.38, as a jet lifted off the, the tarmac to commence the one-hour and 40-minute shuttle to Nairobi, something immediately went wrong. At 8.39, as a jet reached an altitude of 8,100 feet above sea level, just 400 feet above the ground, its nose began to pitch down. Pitch up, pitch up, one pilot said to the other as the Boeing jet accelerated towards the ground. The radio went dead. This tragic story happened, reminded me of our spiritual journey. But our ending is different. Because of sin, our direction was nose and pitch down. Our spiritual flight, our spiritual flight path was destined for doom. Jesus died on the cross, was God's plan to course correct, to save us. And that he did. And that was the job he finished. Scripture says it best in Romans 8.39, 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that, my friends, is good news. We finish with a reading from Luke 23, verses 44 to 46. It's now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Tonight we have talked about six of the seven sayings of Christ, some profound words and thoughts for someone hanging on the cross in pain and agony. Amazing that in the midst of this pain and this agony, he's able to speak these theological truths, these, these deep words of meaning for us. Understanding what he was doing on the cross, why he did what he did for us, was all contained there in these last sayings of Christ. And if it wasn't enough, him sacrificing himself on our behalf. He had the awareness to forgive a criminal, to make sure his mother was cared for, to offer forgiveness to those around him. He experienced suffering, but even more, he experienced separation from the Father as the sin of the world was placed upon him. And he experienced the agony of the spiritual battle that was taking place. This verse here of Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, is a verse that comes from Psalm 31.5, words that King David himself spoke. We see that Jesus, time and time again, quotes scripture to gain strength. We saw him do it to Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. And now we see him do it again at the end of his ministry and his life. He is committing his life his last breaths, his will that he had fulfilled, he is committing that into the hands of the Father. The Father who had served as Christ and man. The Father who had a perfect relationship between Christ and the Father. The Father whose will he was living out. There was not a time when Jesus didn't think about the will of God. What about for you and me? I think there's many times we're not thinking about the will of God, right? We're thinking about our own will. But Jesus always thought about the will of God. It was why he came to the earth, why he called his disciples, why he preached the good news, why he ministered to women, outcasts, and, and healed the people. It was why he was there to lead people to salvation. We could do well to keep scripture in our mouth at all times, especially in the, in the tough times of life, in those times when we need comfort and strength. God's word has helped me to get through the death of my father and recently the death of my mother. God's word has helped me in those times when I felt lost and wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. God has gotten me in times when I doubted myself and didn't have confidence and, and needed to again look to him for that strength and assurance of who he created me to be and what he had for me to do. God got me through the time when I wanted to be married for year after year after year and 
wasn't meeting that person God had for me to marry. God's word helps to keep me focused on living for God and make my life more meaningful. We would do well to keep the word of God close to our hearts and minds. It is because of Christ that we have the life we have and that eternal life that has been promised and given to us. We need to utter these words like Christ did, into your hands, I give my life, I give my spirit. A number of years ago, I was the high school director at Bel Air Presbyterian Church, and we took a leadership retreat one weekend at the Joshua Tree. And there's me and eight of my high school leaders. And on the way, we decided that we were going to do some rock climbing, so we stopped at Kmart and we bought some rope. Now, I don't know why we thought rope from Kmart would help us in the rock climbing. I mean, if you know anything about rope that you buy at Kmart, it's not the kind of rope that's that strong, but we did in our foolishness. So we go out and we start climbing on the rocks, and for the most part, it wasn't too bad. You know, they're just not too bad of rocks, easy to climb. But we got to this one place where the rocks were kind of a little bit treacherous. And my friend, uh, one of my good friends that was on the staff, he was able to get up onto the upper rock, but there was a gap between the rocks. And so it's kind of a, a scary little climb. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm the leader of this group, and if anyone dies here, I'm in big trouble, right? <laughs> or even if anyone gets hurt, they can say, what were you doing with your staff, with a Kmart rope, you know? I mean, you know, you're not prepared to do this. And so this, these thoughts are going through my mind as we're facing this. You know, like, should we really even go on or not? And my friend's like, yeah, come on, we can make it. We could, you know, when you're young and you're 20s and you're crazy and right? You do these things. But I remember that my friend, he reached out his hand and he said, take my hand and I'll help you up. I remember it even to this day as clearly as I'm talking about it now. And I remember kind of getting my foot on, on the rock, reaching up, grabbing his hand, and I kind of jumped as he pulled. In one swift movement, I was there. And it was, almost, it was kind of a laugh, like, that was that hard? I mean, it really was difficult, but it didn't seem difficult because it happened so quick. But his hand reaching in him, and my grabbing his hand, into your hand, I commit my spirit. That's what God says to us. He reaches out his hand, and he says, take my hand. You're scared? Take my hand into your hand. I commit my spirit. Now Jesus was ready to breathe his last breath. He knew that his earthly body would be no more. He knew that his earthly body was a temporary residence. It's true for you and me. Our earthly body is a temporary residence. It's only going to be here for so long, and then we will give up our spirit, and hopefully it's into your hands, God, I give my spirit. Spirit, the spirit that lives on. Jesus had been a king, a priest, a prophet on this earth. He had fulfilled all the roles of importance as a king. He was and is the one who rules over us, over our hearts, over our entire being. As a prophet, time and time again, he spoke truths of God that cut deep into our hearts and that draw us to confess our sin and accept him as our savior and to live the life that God has created us to live. And now, as a priest, he was offering the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice that would pay the penalty of our sin for all time, to be fully forgiven, cleansed, renewed, so that we could be in a right relationship with God. He was giving up his spirit so that all would be 
made right. As Arnold read, in Adam, sin came into the world. In Christ, sin has been removed. So as we close with this thought, may we allow the messages that we've heard, these words that Jesus spoke on the cross, may we allow those words and this message that comes from the cross wash over us to give us life, to give us a joyful life, to give us a forgiven life, to give us a meaningful and purposeful life. May we not hold on to this message for ourselves only. Whenever we hear a message, it should not just be for you. It should be a message you take, and you should have in your mind right now one person that you want to take something you heard tonight, some great speaking, something you heard tonight, take one thought, one message, think of one person, and in the next week or two, commit to share that message of Jesus with them so that they too can know the truth and be washed and cleansed and renewed and lead that meaningful and purposeful life that God has for them. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Would you please stand for that prayer and benediction?